Today, we're talking to Kat from Pluralsight Flow about her research insights that are helping developers to thrive. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I am genuinely curious in what you do. I have been following Pluralsight for probably about six years now. And one of my uh, past guests, I can't remember the name of them, but I remember he lived in Colorado and he had moose on his property. That's what I remember about him. If it's, Col- <laughs> if it's Colorado, it could be Flo, where I work. Yeah. What was formerly oh, okay. Git Prime. Mm-hmm. Yep. Git Prime. That, yeah, that's it. That's so that right. Was, that's okay. where I do research. Absolutely. How long have you been with Flow now? About a year. Yeah. So I direct this research lab there and we're a pretty new team, a really exciting investment from Flow. And so we've been cooking on that for about a year now, which I can't believe actually. (laughs) Yeah. Small world. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you get involved with that? Oh gosh. I have a background in social science, which you may have seen. And I have always been really looking for this kind of team, I have to say. Like, I had the chance to build this lab. Um, Greg reached out to me to talk about it. He's our GM at Flow. And the vision for it was just so much what I wanted to do with my life, what I wanted to do every day, which was collect original data, you know, turn it into evidence for software teams um, and share with the world. So that's what we're doing, you know, bringing some diverse perspectives together in the lab, which is also a huge passion of mine, getting data scientists to talk with social scientists and getting design researchers and getting people with all kinds of different backgrounds to sort of weigh in on helping software teams. So because Flow helps them be more efficient and track their work, is that what the basis of the program is? Yeah, so that's certainly a part of it. We don't actually do product research with Flow, but we are a research team that does foundational research. So we study like big topics, right, of what is it that makes software teams really thrive? And that's something I love to do. I was uh, in academia. I was also a consultant. So I ran an evidence science consultancy with organizations, um, looking at how organizations put research into practice. So this has always been kind of like my passion is almost like the open science side of doing this kind of work. Yeah, so we do large foundational research projects, not just with Flow users, right, but with large scale studies of engineers out there in the tech industry. And then we share those findings with the field. Has the question been answered? I mean, Amazon (laughs) has like two pizza teams. Don't we just say, we don't need research, just two pizza teams. Everything's good to go. (laughs) Right. Yes, it's so easy. If it were so easy, why would we be so worried about it all the time, Joel? (laughs) (laughs) We do have a large study out that we just launched on developer thriving. The pieces that we think are really, really important for technology leaders to understand about kind of what I would call the good problem-solving cultures that we create around software engineers. So it's not easy, but we do think it's not solved necessarily. But I do think we have found some pretty exciting and helpful things um, for leaders to understand. Well, now you got to tell me. What'd you find out? (laughs) So in the developer thriving framework, what we did was we took a look at where we could pull from empirical research across our different backgrounds. So I have a background in psychology. Um, One of my team members has a background in clinical research. We have some data scientists and design researchers, right? And we took a look at all of this empirical research from academia as well as applied research on just the things that really unlock innovation and problem solving for teams working together. 
So there are four factors that we came up with, um, and we called them agency, support and belonging, motivation and self-efficacy, um, and learning culture. And we developed original measures of each one of these things. So um, on a developer team, for instance, for agency, do developers feel like they have a voice in how they're being measured? And if they disagree with something or they notice something is broken, they have a way to speak up about it. And so when we went out into the industry, we did research on this um, with about 1,200 different uh, software developers. We actually found that these factors significantly predicted their productivity. So that was super exciting to find as a social scientist. So I am curious, my background is software engineering, and I know you just said that you surveyed a lot of developers uh, to get some of this information. But I was curious, when you talk about unlocking innovation and problem solving, like how do you determine how do you determine that? Like how do you determine that the information I'm getting from these people, I know that they've solve problem solving, or I know that they are good at unlocking innovation, or, or am I thinking about it wrong? Can you tell me a little bit more about, like, give me an example maybe of of this question? Yeah. Yeah. So you had said, I made a note, you said you were looking for what unlocks innovation and problem uh, solving when you were doing your research. Uh-huh. And how do you do that? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So let me tell you a little bit about like how we try to measure these big human experiences. And one large way of surveys Right. And so you can build a really good survey out of measures that we've created in the social sciences that people tend to act, answer very accurately. Um, are you familiar with like the DORA metrics and the DORA research in software engineering at all? Uh, no. OK, so this is a large scale research project that looked at elite and high functioning organizations. And one of the things they did was actually run a, lar- a lot of surveys asking people what was working inside of their environments. So we took a similar approach here. We developed some survey measures of how developers felt like they were experiencing these things on their teams. So for instance, you go into your organization and you'd ask your software developers, you know, how likely would you be to speak up if you felt like your team was being measured wrong, right? This kind of question. And people are actually very good at answering this kind of question, especially when you do it at scale and over time and you know, ask them kind of a battery of questions. So that's one of the things we've been working on in, in our research is actually creating some of these measures for software developer teams. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. So this this Dora is, it's been around for a while. It's a independent organization. How, do, how are they set up? Dora, yeah, is, I don't want to misspeak because this is not my team, but the Dora <sighs> metrics, the Dora 4 is a, is a series of metrics that was put out in this ongoing research project. And it actually, I think, is with Google now, this team. And so they put mm. out reports every year um, and they look at things yes, like, yeah. yeah, they look at things like deployment frequency, um, mean time to resolve changes um, and mm. other kinds of ways of measuring software work and how we deliver software work, which as you know, you've kind of alluded to is really hard to measure, right, what success is in this field. So that's one kind of guiding light that we have for how to measure it. Yeah, I had read an article Google put out about research, and it might have been door related. But the takeaway that I have, I think two or three years later, is that psychological safety on a team had a huge impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you went around and you designed your own research and did your own surveying and you figured out 
the four things and you said it was agency, motivation, self-efficacy, learning culture. And what was the fourth one? Support and belonging. Yeah. So developers feeling like their team not only appreciated and cared about their technical work, but also supported them as a whole person. And that if they were going to try to change, try to develop, right, that gets right to the psychological safety piece, I think. So we had that represented in this research, too. Help me understand that better. Support as a whole person. What does that mean? Yeah. So there's a really, really cool concept in social science called sense of belonging. Have you ever heard of this idea? No. Yeah. It's actually very tightly related to psychological safety. Psychological safety includes sense of belonging. And you can measure it. It's basically the belief that someone has that a person like me belongs here. A person like me can succeed here. Um, and even if I'm different from people around me, right, or have a different perspective, I still belong here, right? It's kind of your sense of community. And this is a very, very powerful engine for people. It kind of helps you navigate rough patches. It helps you if you make a mistake, for instance, you might say to yourself, that's OK. You know, I can make a mistake and still belong here. Right. So it's kind of this very important way that we find comfort when things are hard. Um, and it, it matters a lot in STEM fields, actually. So there's some really cool and interesting research on how good are we at creating sense of belonging when somebody takes their very first engineering class in college, for instance. And unfortunately, the answer is we're not very good at creating this. Students come in with a ton of stereotypes about who belongs in a certain field, who can do what kind of work. So sense of belonging, when you can create it, especially in these very important early moments for people, like the first time you join an engineering team and the first time you take a coding class, something like that, it has this long-term effect on people. Yeah, you want a positive experience with it. How, how does uh -huh. a college, let's say that they... How do you go about putting out, and I know this probably isn't your key job, but if you were <laughs> to hypothetically put out to colleges some sort of standard of within your engineering programs, you could do these three things. And if uh, you're doing basically nothing now, but if you do these three things, that will help you have a better sense of belonging. You're speaking my language now because I used to do intervention science in education and have done it for tech organizations. This is the kind of question I love, right? And so there, we have seen interventions that have really helped on sense of belonging. One thing that I'm thinking about is when teachers in an introductory class, say you have like the one computer science class that everybody has to take, right? That is like one of your most high value opportunities to change the minds of the largest number of undergrads, right, who might ever encounter computer science. Like this is maybe the only time for some of them to make this decision about whether or not they can code. So you can say what we want to do in this introductory CS class is make sure we really set the tone in the beginning. First week of class, we show examples of people who have been really successful in coding careers, for instance. And we have those people talk about their early learning, their early times they struggled. And we make that a really explicit part of the conversation because one thing that happens with all of this stuff is that students hold a lot of beliefs in their heads that are like, okay, I can, maybe I belong in this field if only I never make a mistake ever, right? <laughs> and it's very counterproductive. So making that sort of a thing that they see like all these very successful people have also had this journey that I'm on. It helps them draw that connection. Yeah. 
So we call those interventions. That would be like science intervention. Yeah, you can call it an intervention. What could I do on my team? Let's say I'm a leader, leaders listen to this, engineering leaders all the time, right? Everyone's growing, right? People are growing, they're bringing on new people to their team. What's something that they can do? Like something really small and easy. (laughs) I don't want to give them too much homework, right? (laughs) Just something small, easy. Maybe it's just a perspective that they can walk around with. Um, One way to create the sense of belonging on their team. Yes. Okay. I have one for you. Have you as a manager ever sat down with your direct reports and and asked, what does success mean to you? Have you defined success? Do we share a definition of success? Do we maybe like different things sometimes are in our definitions of success? So we've actually seen in research in software engineering research with real teams. Um, Margaret Ann Story, who's a researcher who's worked with Microsoft, has found this Um, that managers and individual contributors on software teams often have very different definitions of success. And something that's interesting is that they also don't talk about it very much. So I was at a conference um, last fall with one of my researchers, and uh, she sat down at a table and was, you know, introducing herself to a manager who happened to be there with his individual contributor. And um, and they said, you know, what are you doing here at an engineering conference? You're a psychologist, you know. And she said, hey, you know, we do this research on like, how do people think about success? And, and, and you know, how do they think about staying motivated? And the manager in the IC like turned and looked at each other at the table and were like, how do you think about success? Have we ever <laughs> talked about this? So she got to sit there and listen to them have this like whole beautiful conversation. And so that's like, such a tiny but important thing you can do. 100%. Uh, so I'm a founder at, at this company. I was engineer. I was a co-founder. But this is the first time the past six, seven years that uh, I was the CEO and I didn't have a co-founder. Um, so I got to learn the, the whole sales side of things. I got to manage people who weren't engineers. And, and that was a big learning experience for me. And luckily, I, I kind of fell backwards into some some of that, what you were talking about, because early on, when I first started running engineering teams, you had to come up, we had this conversation was, it's done. Well, Dang. is it, what do you mean? <laughs> Did you finish writing it and it's in development? Is it, as it passed staging? Is it in production? Is be, are there people being able to use it? And so we ended up having to come up with this definition of done, right? Mm. So that when, whenever we say the word done, like, yeah, that's done. And there's six people on the team or seven people on the team or involved in the project everyone has a different version of done in their head. And so we had to figure that out. And I, I did carry that over through, because we're a fully remote company, so we lean harder on our KPIs for knowing that stuff is happening. Something that was fun to watch the bigger companies figure out in the pandemic. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were able to do that. Defining success on your team is the thing that a manager could do with their direct reports, individual contributors that would help them give a slight bit of advantage. Absolutely. I think that that's a beautiful start to the conversation because, you know, one of the things that I think about as a leader who works in data, as someone who's always worked on how we use evidence in organizations, I think about things like, where do we already have the answers inside of our organization, like from our people maybe, right? And we hear in our research with software teams so much stress and tension and responsibility from engineering managers. So that was another piece that came out of this project we did on developer thriving was a lot of managers feel like 
you know, they're responsible for everything and having all the information and they just don't have it. Like your one human brain is not big enough to have it. So a lot of the recommendations that we put out in our research have to do with where can you actually find that information and see yourself as an, if, if you're a manager, right? See yourself as someone who translates information and elevates it and amplifies the voice of your developers rather than feeling like that pressure to generate all of the answers yourself, right? And do you have direct reports? I do, yes. I lead this research team, so it's a very interesting crew. So you get to learn about it, and then you get to use it within your team. Always. It's always very meta when you're a psychologist. (laughs) Right? They'll call you out so fast. (laughs) Oh, 100%. 100%. Yes. Motivation, self-efficacy. I'm a very independent person. And my personality, I'm I'm a big on extreme ownership and figuring things out. I believe that once you take ownership of whether you're the problem or whatnot, it gives you the power to then change the variable so that you can then uh, improve the outcome. But when you say motivation and connect that with self-efficacy, in this context, like what is that? Yeah. So self-efficacy is also a concept that comes out of social science and we've measured it in classrooms and we've measured it when we study. What is it that keeps people like achieving over time, right? So achieving long-term and like, you know, there's a thing you have to do when you're trying to achieve a really big goal, which is basically get knocked down and pick yourself back up again, right? And so when I give people advice about something like uh, keeping your New Year's resolution, right, which is the thing that people always want to know. You're a psychologist, like, how do I keep my New Year's resolution, right? And I say it's, it's not about never failing, right? But again, it's about that pickup after the failure. Self-efficacy is a big driver of that. It's kind of like this this self-talk that we can do to say, I'm not sure what the solution is yet, but I know that I have the ability, the capability to solve it, right? So self-efficacy, you can be high or low in your general self-efficacy. And we can measure that with developers. So we can say, hey, you know, you carry around a lot of doubt. You're undermining your own self-efficacy. You're probably not even aware of it but you're going to give up sooner and you're going to not always see the creative solution because you're not, you know, understanding that you're on this productive journey. So if you've ever heard of growth mindset or those kinds Mm -hmm. of things, yeah, self-efficacy is under that same category. It's kind of a version of growth mindset. What was the popular one that came up maybe about six, seven years ago with the, they felt like they were, oh, imposter syndrome. Yeah, imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. <laughs> so when I heard that, I was like, what is, like, why would you feel like you're an imposter? Because I Googled, um, I'm a nerd, so I look up the definition <laughs> in the dictionary and I'm like, I don't understand this. After enough conversations, I figured from my understanding of it, and you can correct me because you're the, you're the expert, but I just was like, that's self-doubt. I was yeah. like, if, if the way people are using the word, it means that they're doubting themselves. And that's been around since the beginning of time. So it was just the kids these days, I think coming up with imposter syndrome. No, I understand. I I sometimes, you know, on our team, we joke about like the buzzwords of the day, right? Or the, you know, the hot topic word of the day. And But I always try to pay attention to like, you know, if something really resonates with a lot of people, there must be something going on. Like there people are trying to express something about their experience. I'm with you. There's some great, there's been a great, there was a great HBR article, I think, about, you know, we should stop telling people that they have imposter syndrome when actually their environment is just being terrible to them. 
right? Like everyone would doubt themselves if you're in a place that's treating you badly. So that to me is the current version of this conversation about imposter syndrome is have we actually just come up with this word because it lets us avoid talking about whether our workplaces are really good for us. And I have some a lot of empathy with that because I I see a lot of people when you start to talk to them about their work, you know, they might say, well, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if I'm good enough. I'm, I'm not a 10x engineer, all those things. And then the key question to ask, again, tip for managers, key question to ask when you hear that stuff might be, so can you tell me why you think that? Where did that come from? Can you give me an example, right, of a time that you decided this is true about me? And you'll often hear somebody will tell you, you know, well, I did my best to write this piece of code and then I had a really toxic code review and it was terrible and I just decided this whole language isn't for me, right? You hear about these important turning points for people. And then again, intervention thinking. You can intervene on it. You can say, okay, well, let's like change the belief, you know, because I think that maybe that was wrong, that feedback you got. You're brilliant. Uh, <laughs> is there a word Is there a word for when words become like really charged with emotion? Like for example, like, do you guys refer to the like specific words in culture that are currently like really charged with emotion where if you bring those up, you like, you don't bring that word up at dinner with grandma or something. <laughs> I tend to call words like that loaded, like loaded. loaded, loaded with emotion, loaded with energy. Or, you know, it's like um, I put something really heavy down on the table, right? This is a, I also, there's a word you might like this as a vocab word. I like to call some things a suitcase word. Like, let's let's unpack that because you just you just sat a huge suitcase down in front of me, like the word productivity. What do you mean by productivity? Right. The word done, maybe. Right. We we have to sometimes use these huge words, but they hold a lot of different concepts inside of them. Yeah, that was something I'm always working on um, more recently. And I I share I'm very transparent person. So more recently, we're working on our marketing automation and we are visualizing it with these this like lucid chart software thing and um we we're, were going through and i was working with the marketing automation person and then they went off and did some research and came back and when i saw it it was so far from what i expected it to be like in a not good way and, and I, I wanted my in, my immature early leader instinct was to be like nope sucks <laughs> but then i'm like that's just gonna make my job harder because first i'm gonna burn some credibility and some emotional capital with this guy by just like saying it sucks and secondly it's not gonna actually get us anywhere and i'm no matter what i'm still going to have to figure out the things that are quote unquote wrong with it or that i need changed or that we need to discuss so that's just something that um I'm always working on is not giving such a quick like no response and I promise you Kat I am not perfect. <laughs> and <laughs> I I usually yeah. I usually apologize or I usually catch myself. I was like nope. And I'm like oh wait, hold on a second. Like I shouldn't just say that. So I'm always I'm always working on on becoming a better leader. Well, here's the great thing too though is you know I think I I face that fear too. Like we I mean we all do of course. And then you you make your career on trying to be really good at things <laughs> and not make mistakes. You know, and then you get into leadership, I think, and you have to be humble in this really new way. And it's difficult. People always say, you know, what gets you success now is not what got you here. And you have to unlearn a lot of stuff. There's something that I find really beautiful is, you know, when you move from the defensive stuff, you know, into like the real talk, like, hey, 
this really surprised me. I was wrong about this. I thought it was this one way and damn, like the data told me I was wrong. That is a moment then you have the opportunity to connect to people, right? And you have the opportunity to build a lot of trust with people and have a very authentic conversation. So I think it can be really surprising. Um, but I try to pass that on from everything to our research to how I lead my team. I think that I find that dynamic very true. So I like to listen to all the billionaires and read their life stories and understand how they think. That's part of my education in my business world. And one of the things that I, I saw a couple times was, I think it was Bezos and maybe Musk or a couple of them, they said something along the lines of this. The most important decisions that I've ever made were not with data, they were with my gut. And then, so I put a little asterisk, I put a little pin in that because what I think they mean is I reviewed multiple sets of data <laughs> and then I made a gut decision on what I felt after seeing the picture as a whole. So, you know, it's easy if you go to one end of the spectrum, extreme scientists like data, 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 it's, you know, really easy in hard sciences, it gets a little more murky in business. But how do you handle that? Like, how much data should I be reviewing? Or how do you answer these big questions? Wow. So that's a really easy question you dropped in front of me, Joel. Thanks for that. So I, I, I have a couple thoughts here. And I love this question, though. And, and here's one thing I would say. You know, there's a story that I love. It was a, a letter that the president of the American Statistical Association, he was stepping down from, you know, this job. And he wrote this final letter and because um, I'm a huge nerd, I read the letters of the American Statistical Association, right? And he started this letter saying, um, if you're standing on a beach, you know, and you notice the waves are going out really far, really fast, you do not need to do a 10,000 person survey to figure out that you should run, right? All you need is an N of one in, in that situation. That is the evidence that you need that you need to get out there. And so I think sometimes... You know, it's not really about data. It's about, do we have evidence that's fit for purpose? And sometimes the evidence that's fit for the decision we need to make is a huge survey. And sometimes it is the art form and the best decision we can make in that moment because we need to do it fast or we, you know, we know that, yes, we have quant data, but it doesn't measure something super important. You know, we're still working towards figuring out how to measure that thing. All of that stuff we bring together, I think, in our decision making. And rather than being afraid of that, you know, I try to lean into it and say, where can it all inform, you know, the other parts of it? So in our lab, we do qualitative research and we do quantitative research. That was one of the things that I was very excited to do with this team, because I think that human experience, we can measure it in like a one to five scale, at, you know, at scale with a thousand people. And we can also have a long, in-depth interview with somebody and that can teach us something super profound. So that's kind of my version of gut instinct, I guess, is the qual research. I love it. And so you finished this big report, you studied these concepts, but what, what do you do now? Like what's mm. next? Yeah, we have a roadmap we're really excited about. Um, one of the things that we're actually diving into is that big suitcase word of productivity. And you know how everyone in tech right now is saying, we need to do more with less, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a moment of a lot of fear and tension for people. And something that I care very deeply about is trying to shift 
our technology organizations away from thinking about just production for the sake of production, produce, produce, produce. That's, you know, how we're going to get results. Move them instead to what we would call performance thinking. Like, what does it mean to build quality products, right? Just like how I think about data, this actually, right? Quality data over big data. We think about what is a sustainable productivity cycle? So we're building some research on that right now. And it's very, very interesting. A huge piece of it is looking at things like how do engineering leaders actually define performance? And is that different from how developers themselves see it? So again, those alignment conflicts are really there. Yeah, it's tough because there's a lot of com- competing things to consider, like the value it's bringing to both the market, you know, your user base, also what the vision of the leadership team has. And they should, in a, per- in, a, in, a in a good organization, they're, they're often very well connected, but sometimes they're not. Uh, and then you have to figure out, you go through the translation. Is this what Flow does? I know I do want to talk a little bit about Flow. Oh, for sure. Is this is this what it helps with? Obviously, you're doing yeah. research. You work with Flow. I'm assuming this product because I remember I did the interview with Git Prime with one of the founders, <laughs> and we talked about the moose and the meese and whatnot. And he had told me, but that was like three or three to four years ago. Can you just remind me exactly what Flow is and how you interact with them? Absolutely, yes. So um, Flow is a tool that engineering teams can use to reflect on and measure their work. So it takes in all kinds of data from your software processes. And uh, it's probably changed a lot in the last three or four years. We have a lot of cool features. Um, you know, just last year launched things like the Dora metrics that I mentioned before, actually. And so what we see, and we're going to have some flow data in our upcoming research, so you can watch for that. But what we see happening in our research on my team is when software teams use measurement you know, together as a reflective kind of process. And they they use it in a way that developers agree with and appreciate, even though it's imperfect and, you know, no single metric ever captures everything important about software engineering. We see that this drives greater productivity. It also helps teams communicate about their work. And so one of the things that we found really, really interesting in our research is I think it was um, less than one in four of the software developers that we talked about was on a team that consistently used software metrics. And hmm. there was, yeah, it was very surprising, especially to those of us maybe who love to be data nerds and are very evidence-based. Um, but we also see things like more than 60% of developers in our research work with teams you know, that don't share their same manager. And those other teams have very different measurement practices. So imagine being a developer and you're working really closely, you're coding with somebody back and forth, and they're being measured in a completely different way than you are, right? That is a huge equity problem, I think, in our organizations. And so Flow, you know, can provide kind of that conversational board and that reflection point for teams. It doesn't tell you, you know, everything that you might want to capture about your environment, but it really helps you start the process. And I think that it also replaces a ton of manual work that managers and, you know, even, you know, tech leads, senior developers might be doing themselves because we're all living inside of organizations that are saying data, 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 right? Show evidence of your impact. Um, And so they're going maybe into their own work logs, into their own, you know, calendars and 
kind of creating their own measures. Um, and really, we should be building tools for this to help our teams do this. Well, it's an incredibly hard problem that's been around since the beginning of, of software. When you said that, the, first of all, I fully agree. If you're working with other organizations within the team, you have different measurements of success and productivity. That can create a huge problem. You used equity as a word, and I don't know the definition of how, like, can you help me understand what that, what that, what you meant by it's an equity problem with the teams mm. not having the same measurement? And then are there other equity problems in the organization? For sure. So equity is a word that, you know, again, that's <laughs> kind of a suitcase word, right? But equity has to do with, you know, are people being met with the same resources, the same credit for the amount of work that they're doing? Are they, do they have access, you know, to the same opportunities? Um, so it's really if you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you've ever heard the acronym DEI, equity is a piece of that. Um, and it really has to do, I think, very basically with fairness inside of an organization. And so, again, sense of belonging, right? Back to the start of our conversation. If you look out into your team and you feel like, well, okay, I did the same work and it didn't get the same amount of credit, that's fundamentally a huge source of tension for people and um, decreases psychological safety. So you want to increase equity in your organization. And I think that there's many kinds of equity. There's equity in how people get treated for their identities, of course, which is a huge thing we talk about. But there's actually a lot of equity to what kinds of engineering work get valued, right, and, and get seen and get rewarded. Um, so we see measurement, actually thoughtful measurement inside of teams has this effect. In fact, in our developer thriving research, this was fascinating, um, non-white developers were more positive about the benefits of using metrics. And so we had some beautiful quotes from a few people because we coupled our quant research with qual research, again, the value of doing qual research. And we had some interviews with folks and they mentioned things like, um, there's a great quote where someone said, metrics can be an equalizer. You know, it's a way that someone, you know, maybe I didn't get seen before or I wasn't in the right room at the right time, you know, because of all these factors or where I worked or what team I was on. But then the metrics were there. They were like a source of, you know, a testimony or a witness to my work. So I I am very excited to follow up on that line of the research. Yeah. Yeah. So you were using it in the context that people being not met with the same resources, right? They don't have the same measurement system. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. In this case, yeah. or maybe they're not, they're just not being seen, right? In in the, the ultimately most fair way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's super important to figure out how to do that within an organization, largely because they do move within teams. Often people will move within the same organization. Is there an argument for having these different productivity metrics across different teams? Like, why is it that way to begin with? Yeah, I think that we're, you know, it's kind of a question about like the state we're in now, right? And I, I find it difficult to answer questions about like the state of the tech industry or maybe the state of, mm -hmm. you know, there are software teams well outside of the tech industry, right? So it's not one state. And, and that's something that we see because we see people who work in technology, but also people who work in financial services or retail, um, you know, or maybe you're the one software team at a hospital, right? Um, so I think that there's not one experience that people have. But some large trends that I see, you know, kind of prototypical trends here might be we are really, really relying on individual software teams, you know, 
whatever you say a team is, because that's also complicated. But individual software teams are holding a lot of information. And then I think we haven't had the conversation in this industry about how do we move the, the right pieces of that information up to the organization, you know, up to the tech function in general? What do we share between teams without mm-hmm. bogging ourselves down, right? Because we do need flexibility. We do need these teams to be able to say, this is how, what we're dealing with, this is our situation. Like, we understand it. We bring this context to it. So, you know, Flow does this, for instance, in that we have different ways that you can aggregate metrics up. And we think that that's a really important piece of this. You don't just say everybody, you know, is going to be able to bring the right context to an individual developer's metrics, for instance. Instead, you want to think about team-level metrics and velocity over time in a tech organization in a way that, you know, really helps you understand the organization as a whole. I think you would like this guy named Adam Barrett. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had him on the show like three or four times, but I first met him under the discussion point of reliability engineering. Mm-hmm. And he talked a little bit about the, how he took the principles from his, um, like from physical engineering and manufacturing products over to software and how he helped structure teams to have like the least resistance on product delivery. And he did a lot of stuff. He's one of the, one of the top like smartest people. I feel like a monkey when he's in the room. I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm just clearly unevolved. This is like the version of humans 2.0. <laughs> well, you're doing something right if you're always feeling like not the smartest person in the room. That's what I think. Because I, I believe intelligence is kind of collective. You know, when you talk about manufacturing, my grandfather was the foreman in a bag factory in Missouri. <laughs> and, you know, I sometimes think I have gone so far from, you know, my family history in the world. Like, it's so different when I work on now. But sometimes I think, you know what? He's just the same. Like, he was there in this big factory trying to keep people safe. And one of the things that was amazing about my grandfather, who never went to college, you know, who um, actually went and boarded with a farm family so that he could go past eighth grade in school. And he had developed this ear for how the machines sounded. And so he could walk out into their factory and he could hear if something was going to break. And these were like back in the day, really dangerous machines, big dangerous. And so he always told me, you know, it was the rhythm. He could hear the rhythm and he couldn't translate it to anybody else. But there was that beautiful art in, you know, his ability to keep people safe in the factory. So I think sometimes people have that sense in manufacturing. We should learn from that. Yeah, I love that hard work he did too for building his family, building that foundation so that you can go the next layer. That's the one thing my dad had said when I, I'm 35 now. So when I started having kids and around 27, I started asking dad questions to my dad, right? And I said, well, how do you think about being a dad and, and all of these different roles you have to play? And he said that his whole thought process was if we can just build a solid foundation for the next generation of the family, then that's a win because eventually the foundation will be so solid and it'll be built up so much that they'll just take off like a rocket ship. And he goes, so that's what I focus on. He goes, if I can raise you kids better than my parents raised me, if I can, you know, if you guys can have slightly better finances, like that's a step forward. And then it's like, well, now what am I going to do with my kids? It's just these small incremental, it's almost like thinking, like your DNA strand over the chorus of yeah. millennia. It's like, what am, what am I contributing here? <laughs> I love that. That's so beautiful. And 
So, you know, a, a huge value of mine is just to always think like you, you can't see all the impact that you're going to have. Like you just can't, you can't know, you know, people are going to do stuff more than you could have imagined. And you're not on this planet for as long as you might want to be, right? And so long-term thinking to me is really about exactly that. That's so beautiful that your dad had that insight. Um, it's like something is going to be better than my generation and it's going to be worth it to be like one little piece in the chain that, that gets us there. Yeah. I think that's how our organizations have to think too. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about your research and the developer success lab because people are listening. They're hearing all this brilliant insight from you <laughs> about how to become better leaders and work with their teams, but they don't want to just be cut off from the cat supply <laughs> at the end of this interview. How can they hook in? Do you have a newsletter that the Developer Success better. Lab puts out? How do they get connected? We have better. We have better. We have a whole website. Um, so definitely check it out. And it's, it's full of resources and we're building it out, you know, really daily. So we've launched a website. It's at devsuccesslab.com. Uh, we also have a white paper series of something that really, really matters to us is to do this rigorous research, but also to share it in ways that you can take back with you to your organization, right, and find it accessible. And so we have the full deep research report, but we also have a beautiful white paper series. It has illustrations, you know, if you think that way. I urge you to people who are listening to, you know, take it, use it, like put it in a memo, right, like bring it to your leadership team. We want to empower developers to use our research to argue for the things that are important to them. So our website is a great resource. We also run a, a, a webinar series freely available called the Developer Success Summit. Um, we'll have another one coming up in a couple months. Um, and our next white paper launch is actually next week um, on visibility inside of engineering organizations. So you can find that on our website, too. Yeah, I pulled it up as you were talking and I love that it looks pretty. There's lots of <laughs> graphics. For me, that's important. So I know myself, I am heavily a visual person. Wonderful. Like you yeah. can explain it to me. That's great. You can write it down in text. That's great. But if you show me an image of it or show it to me in person, I get it like super fast. I'll tell you, this is something that my team is really great at too. So my team, Dr. Carol Lee and Morgan Ramsey, um, two of our research scientists at, at the Developer Success Lab, they are both very visual thinkers. And I, I'll tell you, I am a word person. <laughs> I love to write things. I write very long things. And this was a challenge for me. We we're talking about leadership stuff. They came, you know, into our research and they were like, Kat, we need a diagram. You know, we need a we need a flow chart. We need to illustrate this. And especially out of the qualitative research, which Morgan Ramsey helps to lead for us, you know, there'll be these paths that people go on and important concepts and She's a beautiful visual thinker. So we're excited to push in that direction because I think that sells the story for people. You know what would be cool for you to play around with? Running your research papers through like GPT visualization systems. Of course, like, yes. Make a comic out of this. <laughs> and you just send them like a 200-page research paper and then it comes out some hilarious Dilbert-like comment <laughs> or, or a <laughs> cartoon, right? And then it's really easy to understand. I'll tell you, we have been using it as a learning tool on our, our lab. So we have been... Uh, we have certain, you know, ethical restrictions in what we can send it because people agree to give us their research data. We take that very seriously. We don't put it on any other platform. But for our own learning, uh, it's been really fun to say, uh, go to ChatGPT and say, hey, how would you how would you make a plot for this? And, and how would you make this plot 
more visually interesting or how would you make it more creative? Like some of those questions. And that's been a great learning exercise um, actually for our team. So I just figured this out the other day. So I figured I'd let you know too. I just found out that there is a way so you can get your own like self-hosted isolated instance of chat GPT uh, that doesn't phone home or go yeah, back anywhere. Create your it space. also, yeah, you can also, if you, if you boot it up with this one specific service, I think Microsoft has guardrails on it, but this other one, you can just launch the raw model that's out there. It doesn't have all the guardrails on it. So you can teach it whatever you want. Yeah. You can give it whatever type of data you want and have them process because you know, I was curious to run all my company financials through it and start asking it <laughs> questions and say, act like Dave Ramsey and, you know, help me with this. But you don't, you don't want to do that when it's on chat GPT. You don't yeah. want to put your private research information and, and have open AI models, even though they're abstracted, I'm sure learning from it, you know? No, I think that's very smart. I, I think that's kind of the future of this stuff is going to be, where do we make these models like specific to our con context and how do we train them up in the ways that matter to us? And you know, where do we have the right guardrails, of course, for, you know, what's getting sent to where? Yeah. Yeah. So a really interesting time for this stuff. Yeah. I want guardrails on public services, but I want like freedom on private services. Yeah. You know? So it would cost you roughly $1,000 a month on Amazon Web Services to just boot up the raw model. And you can optimize it and so on and so forth. But but then there's now services coming out. So I'm watching it every day because that's yeah. the problem with this stuff. I'm sure you know with research. I mean, this stuff is just coming out at such a rapid pace. How do you keep up with it? When you're doing your research and all of that, how do you keep up with all of these new advancements and other researchers putting stuff out? <laughs> yeah, I know. I think we're all living, no matter what you're doing or working on, we're living in this world where there's so much content and there's like so much noise, right? And and some of it's like incredibly exciting and you don't want to miss the boat. I always try to challenge myself to to say, you know, the the different like doing picking one thing that's really good for your work is is going to be much better than trying to do like 20 new things a week you know and i i just sort of try to trust that process of like doing that one really good thing making that one adaptation i also think there's something very interesting about like you know what is it that we think is real work versus not and I have a colleague, um, Philip Guo at UCSD, is a computer science researcher there, and he did this work on conversational programming. So people who don't necessarily write code for a living all day long, but they actually need to be conversant in it. Like they need to maybe do some diagnosis or be able to read code, you know, be able to have tech conversations. And there's a lot of conversational programmers in tech organizations, right? But we don't like make computer science classes for them. You know, we don't really like hire for that. We don't really know what to call it. And I think about that with things like, you know, AI models, LLMs, like these models that are going to make certain types of work suddenly accessible to new groups of people. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it's, it's very beautiful to me as a psychologist because I'm like, great, we can have more time to like tell stories, to do it, you know, whatever we can replace the grunt work. But then, of course, there's always the side of it where you're like, okay, this is scary. You know, like I, I, oh, yeah. I have these technical skills and suddenly maybe it doesn't matter that I have them. So what do I do now? Yeah, co-pilot's coming for your job, uh -huh. people. <laughs> I think, co you know, co-pilot, those things, like they're never going to be able to come for code quality, for architecture, for strategy, you know, for the people skills of code. People would like to spend more time doing that stuff. 
Well, I listened to the the great theologian Justin Bieber, and he says, "Never say never." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, this is great. Is there any calls to action? And by the way, I love that you brought up the conversational programming. I I know it instinctively, but you just put a label on it for me. So thank you for that. Awesome. Is there any other calls to action? Go to the website, sign up for newsletters, go buy Flow. Right? We should tell people to go buy Flow. <laughs> Everyone knows Pluralsight. Yeah. We see flow helping people. I think that one of the big recommendations we have in our research is take a look at whether you're doing measurement inside of your engineering organization at all. And you might be surprised, you know, to find how little you're doing it. We find individual developers actually don't always even give themselves credit for how much they're working. Like it could be a really positive tool for developers who can be very hard on themselves. So that's maybe like a cultural call to action, a really concrete call to action is go download our white paper. The first one's available. You can read about the developer thriving framework. You can get a really beautiful, you know, illustration of it. And we also have these recommendations, many concrete recommendations. They come straight, not just from us, but straight from the managers and the developers in our research. Um, So we have tables of that, uh, different starting places, depending on your context. And you can look out for the next white paper next week. I just want to say thank you on behalf of all the engineering people to be out there researching it and coming (laughs) up with insights to help us grow. It's very useful and we appreciate it. Oh, I love hearing that. That's the best thing we can hear. We're here to help. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.